Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQVD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The COP28 climate conference closed last month with a U.N. official suggesting we're at the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era, with nations committing to transition away from them. But as The Guardian's Darna Noor reports, in 2023, oil and gas producers walked back their climate promises, expanded their operations. We'll learn more about The Guardian's ongoing series, Big Oil Uncovered, and what it will take to get the industry to change. We'll also look at how California's role as an environmental leader and oil producer fits into that effort. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Fossil fuel companies have made a range of pledges to reduce their global warming emissions and prioritize cleaner forms of energy. But according to The Guardian's Darna Noor, oil and gas companies have reneged on, scaled back, or taken other steps in 2023 that, quote, stand in sharp contrast to those promises. Add to that, the U.S. last year extracted more oil and gas than ever before. Joining me first is Ethan Elkine, director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law, host of the Climate Break podcast, and also our partner in our In Transit series. Ethan, so glad to talk to you in the new year. Thank you, Mina. Great to talk to you, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. I want to ask you, looking back at last year, which is the subject of today's conversation, with regard to the role of big oil, are you surprised to learn that they've actually expanded operations in the face of the climate imperatives that we've all been hearing so much about, that the U.S. has also extracted more oil and gas than ever before? Well, I'm not surprised, and that's for two reasons. Uh, one is that there's a lot of money to be made still in oil and gas production, and you know companies are set up to maximize profits wherever they can, so they've been taking advantage of that. There's a big market for oil and gas still, and there will be for decades to come, although it's going to be declining as we move to cleaner sources. But the second reason I'm not surprised is that we really have not seen concerted government action, even in states like California, which are very progressive and pro-climate action, to limit the ability of oil and gas production to continue in a sort of unabated fashion. Some of that is a nod to the reality that I just mentioned that we continue to need fossil fuels for the for the sort of near-term future here. But also it's a nod to the political reality that these are very powerful industries with a lot of workers and a lot of tax revenue that's generated and a lot of political power. They have a lot of dollars that can influence elections and fund candidates. Well, Help us wrap our minds around the need that we still have for fossil fuels, why it's so hard to transition away. 
Well, the main issue is that we needed to power our economy today. We, we do. Uh, we are making a lot of progress in scaling up alternatives. Electric vehicles, for example, are about 25% and growing of new car sales in California, nationwide, closer to 10%. A lot of uh, jurisdictions around the world, China, for I'm example, sure 25%. Yep. So uh, bottom line is that uh, we see a lot of uh, progress in that uh, in, in that direction in terms of promoting more zero emission vehicles. But uh, at the same time, we still are relying on a fleet of Fossil fuel powered cars. We have internal combustion engine vehicles that aren't going away anytime soon and aren't going to go away for decades. So we can't make this transition overnight. It's going to take a number of decades. We're making steady progress, but in the meantime, we will need petroleum based fuels. Yeah. I mean, specifically in California, we're talking about, you know, counties, cities that their entire economies are fueled by fossil fuels. Just remind us also of just the impact of doing it. Well, that's an important point. I mean, just look here in California, Kern County, for example, which is our major oil producing county, the city of Bakersfield down in the Tehachapi Mountains, uh, for listeners who are uh, familiar with that area. In Kern County, the oil and gas industry is, is a major uh, source of employment, a major source of tax revenue for the county government there. So we're, we're still very reliant just from an economic perspective on these fuels, even just domestically here in California, let alone the need to uh, continue to import fuels into into states like California. Right, we get a lot of our oil from foreign sources, like in Ecuador, for example. And one of the arguments the oil industry makes is that the oil produced outside of California is potentially uh, done in a less environmentally sensitive way. They don't have the same environmental standards uh, outside of California. That's one of the arguments the oil industry makes, and there's some some truth to that. But the bottom line is that uh, we certainly depend on it economically at a local level, and it's not just oil and gas production facilities, but also things like refineries here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've got refineries that are also major sources of jobs and tax revenue. Yeah. Well, Darna Noor is with us, fossil fuels and climate reporter at The Guardian U.S. Darna, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Ethan was just laying out our continued reliance on fossil fuels. You have written about how essentially you said that the oil and gas companies, the industry sort of fully embraced their villain role, that they took their mask off and were very clear about the fact that they were going to continue to expand their operations, even in the face of uh, contradictory promises that they may have made earlier in 2023. Is that part of the reason they can do that, right? The fact that there is still this very heavy reliance on fossil fuels, that our economy depends on it, but also, as Ethan was describing, there lacks there is a lack of political will with reining them in. I think that's really astute. Um, I think it's really easy for oil companies to make a bet on the continued future for fossil fuels because the U.S. still really has no federal regulations that clamp down on greenhouse gas emissions. And because, you know, despite Biden's uh, continued sort of emphasis on promoting uh, cleaner policies, on promoting alternative energies, for example, he really hasn't done much to clamp down on the role of fossil fuels in our economy. Uh, so one really good example of that is that in October, ExxonMobil actually agreed to buy a major shale producer, uh, Pioneer Natural Resources. Um, that month, Chevron actually also announced that it's going to acquire the Texas oil company Hess. And those were two of the country's biggest oil and gas deals in decades. Um, and essentially, that amounted to bets from both oil companies sort of uh, on the continued future of fossil fuel production in the U.S. And that's, of course, you know, as as you've all said, despite scientific consensus that coal and oil and gas have to be phased out in order to really avert the worst consequences of the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, remind us of the share of greenhouse gas emissions that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for. 
I mean, it's a vast majority. We found at The Guardian years ago that, uh, you know, it's just 100 companies, just 100 fossil fuel companies that are responsible for uh, the vast majority of uh, greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. Um, And the U.S., you know, though it's currently not the largest uh, polluter, not the largest contributor to global fossil fuel emissions. Um, It's the second largest to China, and it is the largest historical contributor to uh, greenhouse gas emissions when you look at emissions over time. And so U.S. companies really have a particular responsibility here. Yeah. Talk about the figure you cite that the U.S. extracted more oil and gas than ever before in 2023. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really important sort of a place to look, looking at the way that the U.S. actually extracts uh, oil and gas and contrasting it in in so many cases with the ways that oil and gas companies speak about uh, a future that's cleaner, uh, the way that U.S. officials speak about a a future that's cleaner, um, it is pretty striking. And, you know, it's it's a kind of an interesting time for uh, the U.S. oil and gas industry because, you know, in the face of... um, uh, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine in, in 2022, fossil fuel companies saw record profits as suddenly gas seemed to be really profitable again. You know, there needed to be an alternative stream of gas for many economies uh, now that Russia was out of the picture. Um, and that really created a lot of, uh, you know, an opportunity, sort of a crisis to be exploited by U.S. oil companies. Uh, And as such, I think we've seen a pretty major shift um, in the U.S. where, you know, years ago, I think many of us were writing about how fossil fuels were no longer really a good investment. Um, That that seems to not really be the case in today's uh, in today's political economy. Ethan, I do have to ask if we assume that we do need like we're hearing about, right, the Russian invasion of Ukraine as in part driving these oil and gas companies to just double down on that production as opposed to transitioning to alternative renewable forms of energy. So if we assume that, you know, because of the volatility right, of our global order that we're going to need at least a certain amount of fossil fuels in our energy mix, is it better to rely on U.S. supplies rather than, say, international or OPEC supplies? I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask. In a certain sense, you know, if you ask those who are more concerned about the sort of role that, uh, you know, a petrostate like Russia can play in geopolitics, um, sure, you know, better to rely on U.S. gas. Uh, In another very real sense, you know, I I think some of us at The Guardian have sort of made the argument that the U.S., uh, though though petrochemicals and and oil and gas specifically don't sort of make up the bulk of the U.S. economy, it functions like a petrostate in many ways. It, uh, you know, it has... uh, it supplies a large amount of uh, oil and gas to places like Europe, uh, especially now. Um, you know, oil and gas have a really large role in politics in the U.S. Um, and I really think that, you know, many people in the sort of climate world were hoping that the invasion of Ukraine could lead uh, the U.S. and other sort of global powers to create an economy that was more resilient to these sort of geopolitical shocks. Um you know, that would mean doing things like uh, increasing the production of heat pumps and upping, um, you know, the green technologies like the the equipment we need to produce wind and solar power uh, instead of sort of increasing reliance on gas. And we did see some of that in the U.S. You know, we did see Biden, for instance, uh, invoke regulations to increase heat pump production um, to help to wean some of the world off of gas heat. Um, but we've also seen, you know, again, this this sort of uh, uptick in drilling in, uh, you know, sort of uh, oil and gas production 
in a way that I think really concerns many in the climate world. Yeah, we saw the Inflation Reduction Act as well. But Ethan, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of the sources of our oil? Well, I think there is a lot of truth to the advantages of having more domestic production to the extent we need it. I mean, I do agree, you know, we, we need to be taking steps to rapidly deploy alternatives. Um, but, you know, the fact is, the more we can produce here in the United States, the extent we are using it, it is generally going to be produced under, you know, stricter environmental standards. It's also reduced uh, shipping costs when you uh, when you produce that fuel locally, domestically, uh, and also you have the economic benefits of the jobs and, and so forth. But I think the real challenge here is that we have to scale up more quickly the alternatives. Uh, Darna mentioned heat pumps, for example. But there's a whole range of infrastructure that we have to deploy much more quickly. Renewable energy, large-scale solar and wind facilities, the transmission lines to connect them, and then figuring out a, a way to phase out the fossil fuels in a more measured kind of way. I mean, Darna mentioned how President Biden hasn't taken action, but there's limits to what a president can do. I mean, certainly politically, there's limits, but even just in terms of governance, Congress has to step in. And even in states like California, we haven't seen aggressive action to really shut down in a long-term plan fossil fuel production. But that's really what we need to do, have that plan in place and scale up the alternatives as quickly as possible. Yeah. And there is the heart of it. How do we force the fossil fuel industry to make good on their pledges to achieve national and international climate goals, to prioritize uh, transitioning to cleaner energy? How do we hold the industry account to account and get them to change? Those are all questions that uh, we are going to dig into right after the break. We're talking with Darna Noor, fossil fuels and climate reporter at The Guardian U.S. Her series is Big Oil Uncovered. Also, Ethan Elkind, director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. We're asking you, our listeners, what do you think needs to be done to try to hold the fossil fuel industry to account and get them to be a good partner, especially with some of these um, sort of regressions that Darna Noor has documented. What are the messages you've noticed from big oil companies recently? Have you tried to wean yourself off of fossil fuels yourself? How did it go? Email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786 or find us on our social channels. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Oil and gas companies are delaying or avoiding action on climate change, according to Big Oil Uncovered, a series at The Guardian U.S. that's been reported by Darna Noor, a fossil fuels and climate reporter there. Ethan Alkind is with us. 
director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. And so are you our listeners? What are your questions about efforts to try to rein in the fossil fuel industry and get them to keep their promises of moving towards cleaner energy sources? What messages have you noticed from big oil companies recently? Have you tried to wean yourself off of fossil fuels, petroleum products like plastic? What challenges or obstacles have you encountered? Our email address is forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED Forum, at Twitter or X, Instagram, or our digital community on Discord. Our phone number is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Darna, before the break, you were talking about some of the strategies oil and gas companies are using to delay or avoid some of the actions that uh, they said they were going to take. So remind us what some of some more of those promises were and some of the specific things that they've done that stand in sharp contrast to those promises. Well, I think anyone listening has likely seen these sort of messages that have been really in vogue uh, among many in the fossil fuel industry over the past several years. Um, Many oil majors essentially rolled out these pledges that they were going to decrease oil and gas production, that they were going to slash their emissions, in some cases even that they would reach net zero emissions. Um, And over the past year, I think what we've really seen is a walking back of many of those pledges. So in just one example, um, this past February, as we were seeing record-shattering warmth across the U.S. and much of the rest of the world, BP, a major oil and gas company, scaled back an earlier goal that it had made. Um, It had previously said it was going to cut its emissions by 35 percent by 2030. And then in February, it said, actually, we're going to aim for a 20 to 30 percent cut instead. Uh, 35 percent seems like a lot. Um, Meanwhile, ExxonMobil around the same time uh, quietly withdrew funding for this really heavily publicized effort that it had put a lot of resources into to use algae to create a low carbon fuel, Um, you know, sort of unceremoniously. It sort of took its funding away from that project. Um, And then similarly, Shell announced that it would not increase its investments in 2020 in uh, 2023 into renewable energy, um, even though it had previously said that it would dramatically slash its its emissions. Um, And those are just a few of the examples. I think sort of across the board, we saw many oil companies that had previously made these really lofty pledges just sort of start to uh, take them back a little bit. Um, And I think we might see more of that in the year to come. Ethan, one of the things we hear from industry defenders who are resisting, you know, achieving goals, an aggressive climate change agenda, they say things like, we need an all of the above approach. What do they mean when they're messaging that? And what do you think about that? Well, they're basically trying to create an environment where there's an excuse to keep producing and essentially maximizing fossil fuel production. They're trying to make the argument, well, we need multiple energy sources, but that's not really accurate. We need zero emission fuel sources. We need zero emission energy sources. We need to be phasing out fossil fuels. So I really think it's just sort of a a rhetorical argumentative tactic to try to talk about how we should continue fossil fuel production. And, you know, as as I've talked about, we we do need it, but we also need to be getting those uh, alternative scaled up. So I, I think they're t- they're trying to play into some fears around reliability. Um, you know, are, are these other alternative fuels going to be available? 
um, or, or do we have to worry about, you know, things like uh, power outages? You know, they're trying to cast doubt on the uh, alternative sources that we know are cleaner. But ultimately, they're in business to make money. They have a business model that involves fossil fuel production, and they're going to do whatever it takes to keep making as much money as they can for as long as they can. I mean, they're really no different from any other business in that respect. The difference here is that their product happens to cause extreme global damage at a scale we've never seen before. Well, let me go to caller Alan in San Francisco. Alan, you're on. Hi, uh, thank you. Uh, I've been listening, and they talk about uh, getting away from fossil fuels in a way that uh, sounds like they think we won't be able, we won't need them in the future, but we will uh, for things like uh, jet fuels, plastics, lubricants, uh, pesticides, fertilizer, and even coal. We won't burn coal to generate electricity, but we still need coal to create steel. So we can reduce our use of fossil fuels, but I don't think we can ever quite get away from them completely, mm. at least not Alan, in the of the future. Yeah, Alan, thanks. Let me get Ethan's reaction to that. Well, there is some truth to that. There's a lot more products from fossil fuels than just the petroleum fuel that that we all burn. And for those of us who you know drive con- turtle combustion engines or rely on goods that are shipped that way or produced that way, but the fact is there are clean and low carbon alternatives to almost everything that uh, Alan just mentioned. Uh, and you know we can only really we have to do kind of one battle at a time here. The big battle right now is ending tailpipes, you know, ending uh, fossil fuel. Uh, combustion for electricity, but we can also be simultaneously developing solutions for all those things that uh, that he just mentioned. Um, there's, for example, there's low carbon, zero carbon plastics that we could be investing in. There's ways to reduce demand from that. There's low carbon asphalt. Uh, so it, these aren't impossible things to develop. We just need to get the research and development going, the deployment going, and the policy environment needs to be set to encourage research into those alternatives. But we should be realistic about the wide variety of ways that we use petroleum products in our society. And there may be some small, tiny fraction amount of fossil fuel production that continues to some extent. I mean, this would be decades off in the future. There's ways to offset our carbon dioxide usage and bury carbon dioxide that we've already uh, put out into the atmosphere. So we can kind of cross that bridge when we come to it. In the meantime, we've got to keep our sort of eyes focused on the goal of reducing those big sources of emissions and developing alternatives to the other ones that will still remain even after we accomplish the big things first. How much are oil and gas companies even looking to plastic as a source of assured income in the future? And, And what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, a big market opportunity in their view, and uh, and it doesn't necessarily have the same controversy and, and potentially dim prospects as internal combustion engines, for example, when you look at the long term. So they're really trying to lean heavily into plastic production, and I think this is an area that needs more attention by policymakers. There have been some proposals in the California legislature, for example, to introduce a low-carbon plastic standard uh, that would actually help uh, over time phase out the amount of carbon in plastics. But this is, you know, this is a tough industry to take on. And, you know, there's a, a lot of kind of wariness around doing so at the political level, even in states, again, as progressive as California. But uh, but plastics is sort of seen as a, a bit of an off ramp for the oil industry, a way to make more money outside of the more controversial tailpipe uh, emissions world. And I think this is an area where we need more policy attention for sure. Well, the listener writes, I'm an environmentalist, and I agree that it is a monumental task to 100% redirect our economy to reduce climate change. But more than that, I find it appalling that these big oil companies get to make profits from what they do, but do not have to spend their profits to mitigate 
climate change. This is criminal and it needs to end. Darna, talk a little bit about that. So Ethan is talking about legislative efforts in California. Are there any that you want to highlight that might move us towards an accounting of the impact that big oil has had on the climate? Well, at the legislative level, certainly there have been, um, you know, including on the plastics front, uh, a number of different proposals in different states to sort of take a hold of uh, of the numbers here um, to, to really sort of try to quantify the amount of warming that uh, that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for um, and to try to look at, you know, what we can do about the amount of warming that's sort of baked in. Um, in addition to that, though, there have been, I think, really, really interesting uh, gains on the legis- on the on the litigation front, rather. Um, so, you know, there's been policy, but there's also been a number of lawsuits. Um, and one of those has come actually from the state of California. In September, uh, Governor Newsom actually launched a lawsuit against ExxonMobil and Shell and uh, Chevron and ConocoPhillips and BP, essentially alleging that these companies had for decades intentionally been covering up the role uh, that fossil fuels play in the climate crisis and the role, frankly, that their own products had in fueling that crisis. Uh, And that was one of a number of lawsuits that we've seen since, you know, about five years ago. And so I would say that, you know, looking to policy is really important, but there have been some interesting developments in other fronts as well. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that case, Ethan, as well, that Darna is describing. So what is California's lawsuit against the five biggest oil and gas companies? What is their theory of that case? Yeah, well, this is actually part of a number of lawsuits we've seen spring up around the country by municipalities, by states trying to hold the oil industry, other fossil fuel producers accountable for the damages that their products have caused. And the reason why we're seeing these lawsuits spring up is because the U.S. Supreme Court basically has allowed these cases to go forward at the state court level, as opposed to having to require these cases to be filed at the federal level. The advantage of filing in a state court is that you often find much more sort of climate-friendly judges. Uh, In this case with California, they're seeking a jury trial. The jury pool at a state level is often a little more favorable to plaintiffs than at a federal level. So by the U.S. Supreme Court doing that has sort of opened the floodgates for these kinds of uh, lawsuits. So it's not so much that we now have new evidence, although there is more evidence. It's more just that these cases sort of have a, a an easier path now at state level. So for example, in California, the state is suing the oil companies uh, claiming a public nuisance, that climate change essentially is the mother of all public nuisances, given extreme heat, sea level rise, droughts, other extreme weather that we've experienced in California that scientists have attributed largely to the increase uh, in uh, in carbon emissions in the, in the atmosphere. They're also suing under deceptive business practices, which is a, a California uh, code that they're alleging that these oil companies knew about climate uh, damages, knew about climate change, even dating back to the 1950s. Uh, the complaint really details a, a long laundry list of uh, evidence that they had experts within their companies that knew these effects of climate change were going to happen, anticipated all of this, and instead they created a public-facing campaign of disinformation, telling the public that in fact the science was uncertain when they knew that wasn't the case. So California Attorney General Rob Bonta and Governor Newsom filing this case are alleging deceptive business practices, public nuisance, and are seeking the damages from the oil companies to pay into an abatement fund that right. would help cover the cost of these damages. 
Yeah, to actually quantify the cost of these damages and pay for those damages, we had Attorney General Bonta on to talk about it. But he was also saying that these cases, that they are hard to advance, that the industry is engaging in delay tactics. Can you talk about that? Well, there's all sorts of ways once you get into a, a court case that you know industry can try to delay it. I mean, anyone following the saga with Donald Trump is aware of how you know there's all sorts of appeals and motions to dismiss and, and ways to delay when it comes to litigation. I think the outcome of this case is going to be uncertain, um, but uh, there is a strong evidentiary basis at least to hold them accountable. We'll just see if if a jury and you know judges are going to kind of follow through on that. But the case was filed in September, as you mentioned, and uh, I don't believe there's been any response yet from the industry on that. So they're going to just try to drag this out because every additional day they can keep producing oil and gas that they don't have to pay damages is more money in their pockets and their shareholders' pockets. Are there limitations to lawsuits like this trying to force corporate action on climate change? Absolutely. I mean, litigation is important. It's important to clawback damages when a company is knowingly created external damages that the public is facing. So there's a, there's a role in sort of uh, punitively uh, and also just in terms of justice, you know, getting those damages back. But it's not going to solve the problem prospectively. I mean, it can in some ways by causing a lot of profit loss for these companies and maybe hurting by hurting their bottom lines. They're not able to invest as much in ongoing fossil fuel investment. But bottom line is prospectively, we do need legislative policy solutions. We need clear roadmaps on the transition out of fossil fuels. We need support for deployment of the alternatives. We need to be speeding up that timeline dramatically of renewables and electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. And that has to be done through a legislative process. Courts are really not well positioned to do that kind of thing. They're better positioned to do what California Attorney General Rob Bonta is seeking, which is assess damages and, and force companies to pay up and end things like deceptive business practices. Again, listeners, you can join the conversation with your thoughts or questions about climate litigation, policy, about your efforts to wean yourself off of fossil fuels or petroleum products like plastic, the challenges you've encountered, the successes you've had. You can email them to forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, post on our social channels at KQED Forum. Annette writes, I'm in total agreement with the concerns of activists who want to change the fossil fuel industry. But if they shut down the industry before we transition our society to fossil fuel-free energy, we will be in trouble. We should in instead decrease the volume of stuff produced and involve the public on where we make cuts. Why is it legal to sell mops that are thrown away with each use, items that must be replaced instead of prepared with a small part, and to transport liquid products diluted instead of selling concentrates, and so on? Um Darna, Ethan was talking about the limitations of lawsuits, the importance of legislation. You reported on what you described as a groundbreaking California law that will force large companies to disclose their planet heating carbon emissions. Tell us more about SB 253. Yeah, so that's a really interesting case because it essentially could, for the very first time, require big firms to reveal how much uh, greenhouse gas pollution they're actually producing. Um, part of the reason that that's so interesting is because essentially it will apply to all big companies that do business in California. And that includes, you know, not only California corporations, but also over 5,000 big national corporations. So we're talking about Wells Fargo, Amazon, Apple, even big oil companies like Chevron. Um, and under that law, you know, by 2026, so so pretty soon, those companies will actually have to publicly disclose how much carbon is produced by their operations and by their uh, electricity use. 
And another sort of critical part of that law is that um, one year later in 2027, they'll also have to produce uh, to report what's known as uh, scope three emissions. So essentially, those are the emissions that are generated by their supply chains and by their customers, um, a.k.a. what's generated by all of us using, um, you know, for instance, uh, gas in our cars that we bought from Chevron or, you know, uh, other corporations purchasing petrochemicals that they bought from Chevron. Um, so, you know, though that's a California law, it could have pretty major implications on the federal level, too. Um, and I'll say that, you know, that measure sort of comes as on the federal level, the Securities uh, and Exchange Commission um, is actually finalizing this really long awaited federal mandate that could do something similar um, mm. where, you know, it could sort of require publicly traded companies to notify investors um, of their, you know, emissions profile and and of climate related risks. So what the risks are that climate change poses to their sort of assets. Um, so we're seeing quite a lot of movement, I think, uh, on this. Although, you know, we we'll have to see how these uh, how these pan out. Yeah, we will. But it's an interesting and, as you say, unprecedented step. Ethan, we're coming up on a break, but talk a little bit about California's efforts to make it harder to put in new oil and gas wells and how the companies are fighting this, the ballot measure and so on. Yeah, there was legislation, Senate Bill 1137, to prohibit new oil and gas wells within 3,200 feet of sensitive sites like homes, schools, hospitals, etc. And the oil industry did something that was pretty savvy. Uh, they basically got enough signatures to put it on the ballot to see if the voters would want to overturn this law. By doing so, they're basically delaying implementation of the law. This will go before the voters this November. So it's bought them you know, basically a year and a half of continued oil and gas production within 3,200 feet of these sensitive sites, which cause all sorts of health damages, as uh, as scientists have, have shown. Uh, and this is sort of a loophole in a way in California uh, initiative law. It's a little unfortunate that this is a tactic. Even if they lose the election in November and the law is upheld by the voters, they've made so much money just by delaying its implementation that it more than paid for their efforts to gather the signatures and get it on the ballot in the first place. We're talking about the strategies oil and gas companies are using to delay or avoid action on climate change and how California is responding, the litigation, the policies, the legislation that's trying to take them to task while at the same time trying to reconcile California's role as an oil producer. We'll get into more of those complications after the break with Darna Noor of The Guardian U.S., the fossil fuels and climate reporter there. Uh, Darna reports for the series Big Oil Uncovered and with Ethan Elkind, director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. And with you, our listeners, 866-733-6786, the number, email address forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED Forum. Questions about climate litigation, policy, other efforts, messages that you've noticed from the oil companies. Are they working on you? Have you tried to wean yourself off fossil fuels? More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how oil and gas production grew despite pledges by the industry to reduce emissions and prioritize cleaner forms of energy, moving towards cleaner forms of energy. We're talking with Darna Nora of The Guardian U.S. and with Ethan Elkind. You may have heard him at, as host of the Climate Break podcast. And you, our listeners, are with us. Let me go to Sarah in Oakland. Sarah, thanks for waiting. You're on. Sure. Uh, so with the um, the... If we were to just end fossil fuels, I think that would cause a huge problem because uh, we wouldn't be able to rely on any kind of base load energy source because wind and solar, wind doesn't always blow, solar's um, sun's not always shining. And um, I think one of the other alternative base load sources that is much cleaner is nuclear energy. So I'd be curious to hear about um what the guests think about that. Mm. Uh, Ethan, do you want to take that? And I, I do want to clarify that, you know, this conversation is less about like totally ending <laughs> and more just about what has been going on with the industry in the face of transitioning away and ultimately phasing out fossil fuels as a major energy source. Um, but yeah, Ethan, your thoughts on nuclear? Yeah, it's it's a well, it's a fair question because we do rely on natural gas uh, power plants to keep some of the base load power uh, when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. That's our cur- sort of current uh, status right now in California with our electricity grid and natural gas is produced, you know, often as a as a byproduct or co-located with uh, pulling out crude oil. From the ground as well, so I do think it's it's definitely a relevant question to this discussion, and there is a lot of debate around this with the electricity grid. What do we do if we don't have these natural gas plants online? And Governor Newsom has actually allowed some existing natural gas plants to continue to continue their license to operate well beyond not well beyond, but a number of years beyond when they were otherwise going to be phased out. In part, recognizing this this challenge right now because we're in this transition with the electricity grid. Nuclear, yes, can provide baseload power. It's very expensive to build, very politically unpopular. The actual true alternative is energy storage. When we produce solar panel, uh, produce solar energy, produce wind power, we often have surpluses well beyond what demand actually would require. We can capture the surplus electricity through all sorts of energy storage technologies, and that includes batteries, also includes things like pumped hydro, where you pump water uphill and then release it later. And even hydrogen could potentially be part of that because you can produce hydrogen from the surplus renewable energy, store it in places like underground caverns, and then use the hydrogen, uh, combust it basically, or run it through a fuel cell uh, to make up for those gaps when we don't have uh, solar and wind power available. So uh, there's a lot of alternatives out there. I don't think we need to keep producing fossil fuels just to provide baseload power, given the the range of other clean technologies out there. And, and yes, nuclear is carbon-free, but again, no real serious proposals to build new nuclear in California or other jurisdictions, just too expensive and too controversial. Darna, do you want to talk a little bit about the efforts that you've uncovered related to the natural gas industry and its efforts to try to stay alive? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're coming off of, right, uh, a series of climate talks, international climate negotiations uh, at COP28, 
um, held this year, of course, at the UAE, which itself is a petrostate. Um, and there we really saw, you know, quite a lot of talk about phasing out uh, the use of coal, even some about phasing out the use of oil, uh, but really, you know, a lot of allowance for the continued production of gas, which for decades, really, we've been told is a, a really important bridge fuel. And there's been some truth to the idea that you know, using gas has allowed us to uh, get some coal and some some oil offline. Uh, but what we've also seen is that there have been a lot of efforts from the fossil fuel industry to continue our reliance on gas, uh, essentially indefinitely. And so, you know, one example of this that I recently uncovered is that uh, gas utilities have essentially been directly paying builders and developers in many states across the country to continue to place gas appliances in homes. Um, and so that's things like, you know, gas stoves, which we heard a lot about over the past couple of years but also things like gas furnaces and gas water heaters. Um, and that, you know, that includes in some states uh, that are Republican-led, some red states, some really conservative states. But, you know, one of the biggest um, utilities that we found, that I found uh, for The Guardian, is actually offering these sort of incentives is SoCal Gas, which serves, um, you know, millions of, of customers in California. Um, and so I, I think what we're what we're seeing is this continued reliance on gas and this continued effort from the fossil fuel industry to do everything they can to ensure that people not only believe that gas is natural and clean and good, but also that, um, you know, that alternatives to gas in our homes are, are really clamped down on, um, you know, that, that people really don't know that there are options available to them. Well, Chris writes, we need more incentives to transition away from fossil fuels, such as assistance for more charging stations, more ability to purchase non-fossil fuel transportation, heating, clothing, cooling, housing materials, and infrastructure materials. Noel on Discord writes, are lawsuits the only way to address big oil's complicity? Is the reason we're not seeing more policy because politicians are compromised by campaign contributions and lobbying? Darna, you want to take that? I think that lawsuits are one interesting uh, aspect of this fight. Um, but I agree with Ethan, too, that there are real limitations to litigation. And I don't think that uh, lawsuits are the only way to sort of tackle accountability. Um, you know, there can be also uh, efforts in the policy space to do things like, uh, you know, clamp down on greenwashing. Um, that might involve greater regulations on the use of certain terms like clean or natural or carbon free um, in the energy space. And when it comes to other sort of uh, technologies and, and products that we might buy, you know, everything down to uh, the the bottle of uh, of shampoo that you might purchase that might say that it's made of a um, you know a clean material but might in fact be made of plastic um, you know we could also see more efforts like the one in California to sort of quantify the amount of uh, of carbon pollution and and other greenhouse gas pollution that is produced by certain companies um, and you know there might be greater efforts to uh, you know sort of allow uh, companies to contribute to funds to uh, further climate policies, you know, that might include things like uh, uh, offsets, you know, in, in order to to sort of say, hey, you've for so long produced so much carbon pollution. Now you need to contribute to the fund to help to ensure that our state or municipality or even our federal government gets off of, uh, of, of fossil fuels. Um, and so I think that policy can definitely play a really important role in this space. 
what's interesting about the litigation is, you know, it's not only new, but it could really have some um, some some funds attached to it. You know, in many cases, uh, municipalities and states are actually seeking damages, monetary damages for uh, the effects that climate change has had on their constituents. Um, and so that could be an important part part of the puzzle too, if those lawsuits pan out, which they're facing an uphill battle. But you know, if they are successful, um, certainly they could they could play an important role here too. Yeah. But even to the second part of Noel's question, how would you characterize the strength of the oil lobby or the fossil fuel industry in terms of, you know, its efforts to influence legislation in California at the start of 2024? Like, stronger than ever um, or waning in terms of its power and influence? Well, it, it's certainly a, a massive behemoth in terms of the, the amount of money that the oil industry has. I mean, you know, in, in a bad year, quarterly profits are just, you know, are down in the billions. So they have a huge amount of of dollars and they've used it to target individual uh, uh, elected official, you know, candidacies. They went after actually a colleague of mine, uh, Dave Jones, former insurance commissioner. They spent the most amount of money in his uh, can against his candidacy to become a state senator in the Sacramento area. Uh, they funded these ballot initiatives like the one to put on hold the setback uh, requirement that I, we talked about earlier. Uh, so politicians are rightly very frightened of taking on the oil industry directly, even in states like California. And it's not even just the industry itself. It's it's the, the labor unions. There's a lot of jobs attached to uh, the oil and gas industry. And those unions are also politically powerful uh, constituents for elected officials. So they definitely have a massive amount of, of political strength, which is why you see so much of the effort to take on the oil industry is sort of indirectly by incentivizing alternatives, not mandating, regulating out fossil fuel production, but trying to stand up alternatives. We've seen that at the federal level, the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. We've seen it here in California. Let's get a zero emission vehicle industry launched. Let's get renewable energy deployed. And let's hope that they become politically powerful enough to be able to take on the oil industry. That's kind of the, the, the broader theory of change because of this political reality of the strength of the oil and gas industry. But to your point, Mina, they actually are less invested now in California. Recently, we've seen a bunch of major oil companies write down some of their assets here in California, in part because of the policy environment here and in part for other factors as well. But uh, I, I do think it, I, we've seen declining oil and gas consumption in the state of California with improved fuel economy, with sale of, sales of zero emission vehicles. So I think they do see the writing on the wall and their profits are going to decline. And I, and I do think their political power is going to decline with that as well. But it's still a force to be reckoned with, to be sure. Well, how powerful are things like the lawsuit that, you know, children filed saying, you know, in very powerful terms about the fact that they are growing up running from wildfires, worried about being in hot classrooms, right? And and demanding that in the case of <laughs> the lawsuit that has originated in California, Genesis B v EPA, right, demanding that the EPA do more to try to secure their futures. Maybe maybe it's paralyzed in political power. But Darna, can you tell us more about those cases that are often put in the category of, of more of an activism tool necessarily than major uh, litigation or results tool? Yeah, absolutely. So Ethan and I have both been talking about these the slew of lawsuits we've seen in the past five years or so from states and municipalities against fossil fuel companies to hold them accountable for climate damages. At the same time, we've seen uh, several suits filed by uh, youth plaintiffs 
um, in a number of different states who are attempting to hold their governments responsible for their role in fueling the climate crisis with pro-fossil fuel policies. Um, and so the lawsuit that you're mentioning here um, was filed last month and uh, essentially a group of plaintiffs between the ages of eight and 17. So all kids really um, alleged that uh, the EPA intentionally and essentially essentially it intentionally allows dangerous levels of planet heating emissions from you know things like power plants and vehicles and and fossil fuel wells and other sort of pollution sources that are regulated by the EPA again those were all kids that whole group of 18 kids were from California um in a sense you know there's a real i think first of all poetic importance of these cases um you know kids are a really important sort of uh, constituency for uh, climate, uh, the climate fight in general, because kids are, you know, if essentially yeah, at yeah. more risk um, it, it, because of their sort of biological differences, you know, kids are mm. um, more likely, for instance, to be affected by air pollution and things like this. But also, yeah, they'll, they'll inherit the world that we're creating for them. Um, they'll be around longer. They'll be alive for longer. In another sense, though, I don't think that we can really rely on these cases to make the difference for us uh, in terms of changing policy, because what we've essentially seen is that most of these cases, if not all of them, could result in uh, declarations of, you know, certain policies being unconstitutional. Um, but they're probably not going to actually change the law by themselves. Um, so they could spur some action, but I don't think that they alone can be relied on to change everything. We're talking about efforts to try to get oil and gas companies to stop using delay tactics or to avoid action on climate change, the people, the policies, the efforts to take them to task on it with Donna Noor and Ethan Elkind. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Amy writes, California has more than 35,000 idle oil wells. Instead of forcing oil companies to properly seal and remediate these wells and surrounding land, operators are allowed to pay a nominal fee and keep these wells sitting around, often leaking methane and other climate groundwater and health-harming emissions. This is an example of state regulators allowing big oil to skirt their responsibilities and pass on the true costs of their industry onto all of us. With such a large budget deficit, it is time that California finally gets serious about making polluters pay for their dirty legacy instead of strapping us with the cost. Ethan, could you just talk about California's interesting role as both a climate leader and a major oil producer? I mean, there were some facts how California in 2022 was the seventh largest producer of crude among the 50 states and ranked third in crude as of January in terms of 2022, in terms of oil refining capacity, the largest consumer of jet fuel, second largest consumer of gas among the 50 states, and so on. Um, though, at the same time, per capita, we seem to be doing better than other <laughs> states. We have a massive population, so some of those numbers can be understood. But, mm -hmm. but is this um, is this sort of dual role as a major oil producer and climate leader? Do you think being reflected in some of the policies or lack thereof, as Amy is pointing out here, is one example? Yeah, we are kind of a, a funny example in that respect. I think Kern County, as I mentioned earlier, is a kind of a classic example of this. It's a major oil producing county, but also a major uh, county for large scale renewable energy, a huge number of wind turbines and large scale solar development down there. And it's sort of 
is a good example of of that uh, that sort of strange paradox that we have being a major oil and gas producer. We also, of course, even though we're a climate leader, we drive a ton. We drive many more miles per capita than most other Americans. So there's a lot of contradictions in California policy, and it's just sort of a quirk of our geography and geology that we have so much oil and gas, you know, underneath uh, the the ground here and offshore as well. And I, it has it, it really explains from a sort of political economy, political science lens, why we don't tackle the oil industry as aggressively as we do for example, automakers. You know, we we can require automakers to produce zero emission vehicles because you know we don't have we're not Michigan, we're not Detroit. We don't have those big auto companies based here. It's easier to mandate a company based in another state to do something. So I think that explains some of the political dynamics in the state. But also, I mean the state the state's voters are very committed to climate action and have repeatedly supported the legislature in pushing forward these pro-climate policies. So, um, you know, I, I think it's an interesting example, but also in a way it makes California in some ways a more honest leader on this and in terms of acknowledging the trade-offs, right? That we, we want to phase out fossil fuel, but that doesn't come without a cost to, to jobs and to public revenues and to some of the communities that are reliant on this. And so we, in a way we get to be a little more honest with people or other jurisdictions around the world that are in similar situations that want to take climate action, but also have to face some real tough decisions uh, domestically in terms of their economy, in terms of their workers and voters. And then Doug writes, new technologies replace older technologies because they're embraced as better. Right now, people say charging a vehicle is too much responsibility and they cost too much. So will electric vehicles be embraced in the future. Scott writes, can you speak to the long-term moves that we expect from the fossil fuel industry? As they drag things out to avoid culpability, the onus will remain on the consumer and the government's response will be anemic. As the environment continues reacting, what will happen? The fossil fuel industry charges us to clean it up? What What do you think, Darna, as you've reported this, the long-term moves that we can expect from the fossil fuel industry, the broader impact, and if there is anything that you have found as a case for optimism? I think one big trend we're seeing from the oil industry is essentially this move from climate denial to climate delay. So, you know, acknowledging that we need climate policy, but also doing everything they can to ensure that climate policy takes as long as possible to create um, and affects them as little as possible. Um, The question of whether it'll be the companies or the taxpayers who are required to pay for that cleanup, I think, is a really, really uh, big one and one that has a lot of residents, especially in California. Um, You know, a previous uh, caller spoke about the problem of uh, orphaned wells. Uh, I think there are something like 35,000 idle oil wells in California. Um, And repeatedly, you know, there's been talk of uh, kind of creating state policies to put pressure on oil companies to clean up those wells instead of forcing taxpayers, instead of forcing the public to sort of, um, you know, take on that responsibility. And I I think that's really a microcosm of the kinds of fights that we're going to see across the country in years to come. Um, You know, we'll see more sort of pressure from the public, um, more kind of public awareness, more public concern about the climate crisis um, and more sort of concern about the particular role that oil companies have played in fueling that crisis. And we'll see oil companies sort of maybe acknowledge a bit of that responsibility, um, but but work to do everything they can to kind of thwart accountability, um, especially when it requires real uh, real money being put up to uh, to uh, to clean up some of the damage and to, to create a sort of greener future. Um, yeah. So- well, Darna, thank you for your series. And Ethan, thank you for the context. And thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.